Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here are your hosts, Alex Kingsbury and Danny Piper. Hello and welcome to episode five of Printing Money. My name is Alex Kingsbury and with me as always is my co-host Danny Piper. Hi Danny. Hey Alex. So today, Danny, we've got on the show Dayton Horvath from the Association of Manufacturing Technology. Um, Dayton and I first made contact, um, I had to go back and check my notes, but it was in January of 2018. um, And it was actually when Melrose Industries was doing a hostile takeover of GKN. Um, It was a, a huge, big deal at the time. They had a powder metallurgy business. They had an additive business. Obviously, we're probably all familiar with GKN Aerospace. Um, and uh, I think it's really funny that um, the first time Dayton and I ever made contact um, was over a deal. And here we are again. Well, that's a, a good transition because that's how Dayton and I sort of met as well. Um, we had been involved in a number of deals and uh, we got into a pitch situation and Lamb Research was on the other side and Dayton was leading all the questions as he was uh, hired on as an advisor to Lamb in the additive space. And I wondered who this guy was. So I started Googling him and then I found out he started writing all these articles on our past clients like structured polymers, Oxford performance materials. So we approached Dayton back at Rapid, oh gosh, in Fort Worth. So somebody do the math on uh, what year that was. And said, 2018, I'm thinking. Yeah, it seemed like the magic year for both of us. And so um, from there, we said, Dayton, what are you doing with your life? And we tried to convert him to an investment banker, which uh, he came on board and joined the team at Newcap uh, shortly thereafter. As a matter of fact, we still carry Dayton's licenses. So everybody in full disclosure, Dayton is uh, part of the Newcap team, but he transitioned out to help expand the universe of 3D printing with the Association of Manufacturing Technology. So Dayton, maybe uh, just as a way of background, tell us uh, what we missed on that cool intro about yourself and tell us a little bit more about AMT. Sure. I never thought uh, I'd be on a podcast with the two of you going back uh, those five, six years ago, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to talk about deals properly. Um, So I'm the Director of Emerging Technology at AMT which is the Association for Manufacturing Technology. And we are a longstanding trade association that represents the companies that build the equipment that make most of the durable durable goods in America today and around the world. So uh, my role covers market research as it relates to things that are relatively new from the standpoint of CNC machining cutting tools, work holding. So that starts with 3D printing. My background's actually in chemistry. And beyond that, robotics and automation and industrial software are other areas of interest to my team and I. And I should mention too that um, Dayton, you are the only reason that uh, Danny and I know each other. So I feel like we've really come full circle here today. Um, Hey, Dayton, you've been um, covering investment trends in additive manufacturing for quite some time now um, and have really developed a reputation in uh, collecting that data and also reporting on it every year. What are some of the trends that you've seen, say, you know, let's go back to 2018 um, and and since then, because I feel like, you know, the last five, six years is, is a good time period to cover. There's been a lot of activity. Um, I remember when I was back at Lux Research prior to meeting Danny or Alex that, you know, GE had just bought a couple companies and that was the biggest news the industry had really ever seen. Stratasys then bought MakerBot a little before that. So these were kind of the big deals of uh, yesteryear. Uh, since then, we've seen about a 37% uh venture capital growth rate in investment over the last five years. And that's pretty incredible to think like, okay, we've heard market size numbers anywhere between 15 and 25%, depending which market report you quote. But to see that much venture capital finding its way into additive on a consistent basis over that period of time, Let's uh, obviously 2020 wasn't such a hot year for that, but 21 sure made up for it. And then 22 started to level off a little bit. So I'd say uh, that's 
really impressive to see from an, an industry that is uh, still growing up in many ways. Yeah, well, it's been a good run. 2023 is going to be a uh, different story once the uh, tale of the tape is uh, is told later in the year because the trends, at least in the North American and European markets, uh, aren't measuring up to historical standards, but it's going to be uh, a fun one to see. You know, Alex and I were looking at some of the um, the data that was coming out of SmartTech and just looking at sort of metal, metal hardware and some of the, the sales numbers in Q1 looks like things are up nicely in additive, kind of growing. I, and one of the sentiments I'm worried about is, you know, how does Q2 start shaping up is, you know, it's a pretty soft time for making CapEx investments. What are you seeing in terms of the CapEx side for some of the traditional manufacturing as you start to look at the data set? Yeah. So in addition to my coverage on the emerging technology side, AMT does these benchmarking surveys on a monthly basis covering U.S. manufacturing technology orders. So where the capital equipment orders are being placed uh, in terms of total dollar value and number of units. And um, obviously there's a bit of a a lead time in these numbers because... uh, Orders and shipments uh, differ by sometimes many months, but at least we can track the orders. And January was, I'd say, a pretty typical January in the industry. Uh, February was notably higher. And then March was just a banner March. It was one of the highest we've seen since 2008. Um, and to give you a sense of scale, we're talking about about $540 million in equipment for March 2023 alone, um, tracked by USMTO. But April, things took a little bit of a turn. Uh, we missed by about 30% from the average of April's over the last few years, adjusting for uh, inflation over the years. So that might be a little bit of a heads up when looking at the rosiness that you mentioned coming out on the additive side from SmartTech. Definitely seems like quarter one was um, a really positive start to the year, but things have softened off uh, quite, quite a lot of late. Is there a geographic split to both the venture capital and the shipment data that you're getting? There is a geographic split, especially for the venture capital data, and we do track it globally, and we do try and pay attention to where the headquarters of the companies receiving the data are. When it comes to the traditional machine tool data I was just quoting, that is uh, strictly with respect to the United States. Yeah, because it does seem that um, a lot of the growth is being driven in North America. Um, I mean, I guess I can only talk to the additive side of things, less so the traditional machine tools. But is that is that what you'd uh, see as well? I'd say so. The U.S. has really become quite a technology consumer, especially advanced manufacturing technologies in particular. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked over the last year or two uh, by companies, especially in Europe, that want to understand where they should enter the U.S. market, where they want to set up a subsidiary. Uh, They want to understand how they can get access to that um, if their first market was Europe or anywhere abroad. Dayton, I'm so pleased that you mentioned that big GE deal back in 2016 because it has been mentioned of late um, with the very recent bid by 3D Systems, uh, unsolicited bid to acquire Stratasys. Um, that totals $1.84 billion, uh, which does exceed that GE deal that we were all sort of talking about back in 2016. Danny, do you want to just do a, a brief recap of everything that's happened since our emergency podcast? We decided for this one we would not be doing more emergency podcasts. We didn't want to set a precedent. <laughs> right. Well, I'll take us back a little bit further. So this sort of starts back on March 6th with Nano Dimension making their first all-out bid to acquire 100% of the shares of Stratasys for $18 a share. That got rejected. They turned around, put a second offer in on March 29th at a $19.55 share price. That too got rejected. And then they put a final bid for acquisition in on April 3rd at a 20.05% share price. And that's to buy the 85.5% remaining shares that they don't own also rejected. So that's when uh, emergency podcast time jumps in because uh, the excitement started brewing really on May 25th because two big things happened on May 25th. 
It doesn't matter which one happened first. There was a hostile tender offer on May 25th by Nano Dimension for Stratasys. So they had tendered, they had, uh, had a open tender offer that they filed with the SEC. That'll be in effect until June 26th at uh, midnight, where they are offering to buy on the open market shares at $18 a share. Their goal here is to get controlling interest of the company. And for anybody, this is a recording on the 15th of uh, June. There was a uh, video released by Yoav Stern basically pleading those shareholders to come out and basically look at the value of certainty of cash versus being diluted in a merger with desktop metal. So they are still after it, but this is open. The next step in this saga will come in on June 26th, or really June 27th after the uh, bid deadline is due. So we'll see what happens there. Also on May 25th, a big announcement occurred, and that's where Stratasys and Desktop Metal had uh, come to an agreement on a merger, a 100% stock merger. So there was an exchange ratio where the shareholders of Desktop Metal would get 1.23 shares of Stratasys for every share that they held. And that was pegged at the uh, price of $15.26 a share for Stratasys. So at the end, it would look like that Stratasys would get 59% ownership and Desktop Metal would get the other 41 uh, post-merger. So that has been filed and I think approved at this point. So uh, that is in process of you know the, the standard closing due diligence, approvals, et cetera, with both boards uh, approving that one. But then again, stop the presses. Since our emergency podcast, um, we had 3D Systems emerge on May 30th. And so 3D Systems is now coming in and they've offered to acquire all of Stratasys uh, on basically what amounts to offering $7.50 a share in addition to 1.25 newly issued shares of 3D Systems for every outstanding share of Stratasys. Basically, Stratasys would then own 40% of that combined entity if that were to take effect. If you really look at sort of the math behind it, I know there's an advertised you know, headline price of $25 a share. And I'll take um, both Troy Jensen's analysis was a little over $19 a share. I looked at BNP's analysis was $19 a share. So when you start to, to weigh out some of the, the synergies and some of the effect of that transaction, you're looking at about similar to $19 you know, price roughly for, uh, for that transaction. So that's sort of what's happened right now. There's a few other little side stories going on, and I want to hand it back over um, to Alex and Dayton to get their comment and feedback on what has transpired in this, in this drama. Yeah. I mean, that $25 a share um, point was really inclusive of $100 million of um, cost synergies. It feels like everyone who is making a bid is making some pretty uh, audacious claims about the cost synergies that, that they think that they can achieve with a merger. And, you know, I mean, I would say to this, really, mergers don't necessarily have a history of being able to realize cost synergies um, at all or uh, early on. And so I think it's really fair to say that you should discredit the cost synergies um, if you're a Stratasys shareholder, at least in the short term um, anyway. Uh, but yeah, $19 a share from 3D Systems and uh, $18 a share um, from Nano Dimension. It, it does really seem like Stratasys is like the pretty girl at the prom that everyone wants to take on a date, right? And there's so many people vying for Stratasys. I'm going to hand it back to you guys and say, why is this the case? Why does everyone want Stratasys? One thing that comes to mind is looking at the valuation of these publicly traded companies over a many year period. We're kind of at a lower point, maybe a local minimum. And that's perhaps a big part of why we're starting to see this activity, because they think that there's a higher than normal probability that there's upside, especially with a combination going forward. Now, that that's just straight from a, a meta perspective. Um, I have quite a few opinions on the synergies or lack thereof that, Alex, I agree with you on your commentary there. But uh, it looks better to act now, it seems, than to stand by. 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to jump in really next on, on the synergy and get your thoughts there. But I mean, my first feedback is I'm just not sure any of this is happening, but for what's going on at NanoDimension. I mean, NanoDimension sort of drove this with their shareholder disputes. They needed to deploy capital. Why Stratasys? I mean, that obviously I think there's a you know familiarity and, and Stratasys actually trades at a discount to to 3D systems. We covered that on the Troy Jensen podcast, which is sort of not a yeah, I, I think other than the U.S. markets treat you know companies in Israel slightly at a lower valuation than those that are here domestically, th- there's no rationale for it because of the margins and performance of Stratasys has been pretty exemplary. So, uh, you know, I, I just think that that forced the issue and that that triggered the desktop metal transaction. And, um, you know, the, the whole 3D systems one is where you know, they're getting into the fray to create sort of this super, you know, one large company and additive. So, you know, I, that's what I want to talk to you both about here in a second. But Alex. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there was a lot said about the um, potential product overlap between Stratasys and Desktop Metal and the fact that actually there's very little in the way of product overlap. There's probably just a little bit. Um but, but not a whole heap. Whereas if you look at a combination with, with 3D systems, um, there's quite a lot more product overlap. And what that signifies or represents is um, the fact that an integration between the two these two mega companies, like keep in mind, Stratasys and 3D systems are the two biggest publicly listed pure 3D printing play companies. Um, so combining them would make one mega company, as I mentioned, 1.8 billion market cap, and um, a huge amount of product integration that would need to happen and business integration that would need to happen. Um, You know, if you just think about the sales channels and the distribution alone, um, all of a sudden uh, a desktop metal stratasys merger looks a lot more simplistic (laughs) than a a 3D systems stratasys merger. Um, I I personally, I've got to say, I, I don't love the idea of one big mega 3D printing company. And Danny, you made a really excellent point in our emergency podcast is when two companies are about to merge, it suddenly takes them off the table for a whole lot of development. And so whether that's business development um, in the form of potential next acquisitions, whether it's innovation um, that gets somewhat shelved when you're going through a painful integration process, uh, I don't really think that this is a good thing for the industry. And, And probably more to the point, I mean, it really just creates one mega competitor. Um, and I think we all know that keeping competition strong and healthy is actually what's best for consumers. Anyway, that's my, my take. I, I don't think this is a great outcome for 3D printing. Personally, what I'd really love to see is some other mega actual manufacturing company come in and make a bid for Stratus, as seeing as everyone else seems to be. I think that that would be a lot more interesting and actually really beneficial for, for the um, market. And, um, and you know, look, not unlike some of the moves that, for example, Nikon has been making in, in 3D printing. The stability that such a mega player in manufacturing would bring, I think, would be very welcome for the trend we've been seeing uh, towards more production focused, you know, multi-system installations, whether it's at the service uh, provider level or at the uh, end user OEM, aerospace, medical, etc. But uh, to add on to your comment on, uh, you know, why stifling innovation, there's, I think, north of 20 companies have been bought by either 3D Systems or Stratasys since the pandemic started. Uh, and all those companies' IPs rolled up. There's a massive technology commercialization component that we may see a, you know, a delay on if one of these were to come together in a big way. And we're hoping that's less the case with a Stratasys desktop metal than it might be with a Stratasys 3D systems, just given that Stratasys brings some cash to the table that might actually unlock some of the things DM rolled up in quite a hurry in 21 and 2. Yeah, look, I, I think the the idea that a 3D systems and a Stratasys come together, it, it does take the exit potential away from a lot of companies. So there's there's one. So as investors, they're all going to be on notice. Where, where do you exit if you don't have multiple options with one big one? So I think it's going to stifle one of, uh, the investment into the industry. I think it's going to be a problem for distribution in the industry because as soon as you put all the distributor networks for the various different systems you know, out there, and now all of a sudden there's one sort of monopoly you know, with the largest players, 
it's going to change the landscape of how distribution is done. So I, you know, I think that this is going to create problems for the industry growth. I know some people think size and strength is sort of the right answer. I think you need to have a couple solutions and I don't think it's going to drive innovation and competition in this space. So we'll see. I, I am, uh, you know, I'm more optimistic that uh, we're going to see the Stratasys desktop metal uh, arrangement occur and desktop metal needed to find a home anyway. So um, I know there's some, this is not, that's not going to be an easy, easy integration either, but I do think that uh, if things play out, I'd like to still see a, a freestanding 3D systems and a, uh, and a Stratasys because they're both great companies. Um, so that kind of leads us on to what else is going on in the market today. It, there, there are a few other things going on out there. So uh, they're, they're not the mega deals, but I think they're worth noting. And uh, why don't we jump on a few of these uh, on the M&A side first? The, the first one was um, Zimmer Biomet um, that announced the acquisition of a New Zealand-based company, Osus. Um, so Osus do medical devices um, that are personalized um, and they specialize in the orthopedic market. Um, Zimmer Biomet is a major med tech company. Um, it's actually really funny if you think about the the prices or the or the, the the money that is floating around about these conversations around you know mega companies and so on. Um, just for a little bit of perspective, Zimmer Biomet uh, in their quarter one results saw one point eight three billion dollars in net sales. <laughs> so this somewhat helps put us into perspective in the three D printing land. Um, they do things other than three D printing. And I think we've also mentioned too in um, prior episodes that medical is one of those more matured marketplaces. Um, so seeing these uh, you know, acquisitions are not surprising and these two already had a, a prior relationship, a distribution partnership um, that they were working in. I think the notable thing here though is uh, the fact that these major med tech companies are moving into the personalised space. So previously 3D printed implants uh, were more off the shelf and 3D printing was used for certain performance enhancements, i.e. what's called osseointegration, which means that bone can grow into implants um, uh, a lot easier. But personalized implants are the next step um, up. And certainly in terms of certification and clearance with the FDA, um, it's, uh, it's definitely something that a big company needs to take carriage of. Yeah, Dayton and I spent a little time digging in this space. Uh, of, let's call it about two years ago, three years ago, talking to most of the major medical implant companies. And the adoption actually of additive hasn't been as high as it could be and will be. I'll put it that way. Because most of these companies, what they do is they don't do a lot of the R&D development themselves. They buy companies like Osis. So Osis is not ZB's first uh, foray into 3D printing. Um, if we go back in the Wayback Time Machine, they entered into a deal with Oxford Performance Materials back in sort of 2012, 2013 for cranial maxillofacial applications. So if you get from ZB a cranial implant through their distribution channel, it's done through the Oxford Performance Materials team. So they're extending this out now, and those are polymer-based. This gives them... I. I think it might be their first titanium-based uh, implants. And these are really focused, I think, really in, in a couple different areas for Osis. I, I think it's largely in the hip, is that right? Um, That's and, right. And pelvic category. So, and, and one thing that I, I saw through this is that I think that's interesting on the osseo integration side is that they're working, and our Osis has been working, and I think ZB is going to continue this with BioGate out of Germany on an ultra thin plasma coating for really, uh, you know, working on sort of bacterial colonization of the, of the implants. What will happen oftentimes is that you can get these, um, you know, lack of integration, you'll get cysts and things that'll form. And, or if you get uh, bacterial, you know, integration where you get cysts or actually infections, that's even worse. And, and a matter of fact, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised at a lot of the reason why they're doing these, uh, uh, emergency hip replacements that are the second ones is because this is most of the hip stuff that they're doing at Osis is a result of the first one's not going well. So um, Osis is a great, you know, from this, this standpoint, I think it's interesting. I'm glad to see ZB is making a deeper foray into this one. Everybody think knows Stryker leads the way here with some of their, with their work. But um, one thing I thought was interesting is Osis hasn't raised a lot of money. To my knowledge, uh, they've only raised a million five back in 2019 and some crowdfunding. So 
um, got through probably whatever regulatory hurdles they needed to do and started the ZB partnership for distribution. And, and that helped them out. Danny, I actually have a question on this one because uh, I could see two different motivations, at least the ones that come to mind for uh, ZB getting in on this more customized approach. I mean, Asus claims on their website quite clearly 100% customized design and four-week turnaround. Is it, Are they doing this to learn more about that space and see if it's a growth opportunity or is it more of a matter of course they needed to fit a hole in their strategy that maybe or in a product line that they didn't have and it just seemed to make sense? I mean, is there a big market opportunity for these custom things? Uh, and yeah, I, I'm going to expect more. I'm going to I'm going to share something. I was on a call earlier today on a medical device 3D printing opportunity, and here's how both the uh, companies on the call characterized this exact thing. They said, right now, or actually, so what is emerging is that the standardized off-the-shelf products is going to be 95% of the market, and 5% will be sort of patient-specific outcomes for the in the near future. So I, I don't think this is going to be a major play. But to your point, there's a product gap that they're filling. One, I think learning how to do patient-specific because it's a change in how your whole supply chain works. And, and that's something brand new. So I think this gives them an opportunity to play. And, and again, these are, from what I understand, sort of the revision surgeries for these acetabular cups. So these are the redos. Something happens. So these are where custom makes sense. So I think this is something where it's an interesting fit. But it gives, I think, ZB a better perspective and a learning opportunity on how to integrate additive further into their portfolio of products. Because this is something where if you looked at their standard spinal products and some of their other products, they're not 3D printed today. And I think this opens the door to more 3D printing in their portfolio. And I think we all anticipate that's going to be the future of it anyways. Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of my earlier career working in specifically in custom implants, medical device implants, um, orthopedic implants. And um, one of the real takeaways there was there was, number one, there was a, um, a disharmony globally um, in the regulation space. And so that's why you will find that OSIS is a New Zealand-based company, and that is because um, they are working or were working in a um, regulatory framework that was unlike the US, which is actually a lot stricter. The FDA is definitely a very high bar to, to get over in terms of reg medical device um, approvals. And second, and this may explain a little bit about the lack of funding to date that they've received, um, these custom implants are um, very design intensive um, but they're very one-off. I mean, hence the name, custom. Um, they need to be designed from scratch pretty much every single time. Um, and it used to be, just a note on the regulatory framework, it, it used to be that they were not harmonized um, and it was a lot easier to get through in particular custom implants, but it is no longer quite as easy. Um, so I would see this as being ZB getting into um the personalized space because Danny, as you mentioned, Strike has really been leading the way on additive and in particular on personalized devices, um, which is full disclosure, also a project I was working on a number of years ago with Striker. And they've been they've been really progressing incredibly well and have also invested a lot of money in the in the personalized implant space. So I think this is a way of C B um, getting up to speed on the personalized implant space without too much of a of an investment. I mean, we should note that the um, acquisition was for an undisclosed amount too. So we don't actually know how much the deal value was. Uh, yeah, agreed. I, I mean, we don't know the deal value, but I, I you know, I think you're going to see that 3D printing is going to go beyond just the personalized. I think it's going to hit the standard product portfolios. So we're, we're going to see as we go down this and some of the other deals that, you know, we're going to see a trend in additive and medical probably as we continue this podcast, maybe even on this episode. So let's jump into the next deal. Yep. So the next one is a, a, a takeover, a takeover of takeovers, honestly. Um, this is uh, the headline here is a dual takeover, Sold Solutions. They acquired 3D Print UK and 3D Verkstan. But uncovering all of the different business units and business shells that various different companies are sitting in and who's acquiring who um, is a little complicated. Uh, Trimec, um, who are a US-based company, acquired Solid Solutions in June 2022. 
So essentially all of these companies, 3D Vexdan and 3D Print UK, are falling underneath the Trimec group um, in one form or another. Um, 3D Print UK is a service bureau. Um, 3D Vexdan actually filed for bankruptcy. Uh, they're a Stockholm-based 3D printing equipment reseller. Um, so this was a, a little bit of a... Um, a saviour point for 3D Vexdan, they've been given some new life. I want to hit the rewind button a little further on this one because the deal was done, you know, I think you mentioned Trimec buying solid solutions in June of 2022, but let's talk about Trimec for a second um, because Trimec was actually a private equity backed company and they got flipped and their last sale was in March of 2022. So solid solutions is actually the first acquisition that was done by the new buyer. So um, Halifax Group was the prior owner, and they used to have a buy side firm. Dayton and I would get calls like every, I don't know, uh, month or so from one of our clients that there was this group, Trimec, that wanted to buy them. And when that switched over, Sentinel Capital is the new owner of, uh, of Trimec. And, and we've had many conversations. They're very focused on what they're trying to do. One of the things that they had indicated to us was they did want to expand out their services capability. And, and polymers was the better starting point. So that sort of makes sense uh, from the 3D Print UK acquisitions and the 3D Workstand kind of goes consistently with what Sentinel Capital was saying um, post-acquisition of Trimec. So they're, they, they're executing on their plan. I don't think these were large deals, but, um, but good for the team at Sentinel and Trimec. So they seem to be going on their defined plan of where they wanted to go with their acquisition strategy. What about uh, jumping into some of the VC deals? I think we, we noted a trend uh, as we started looking at the sequence of deals that uh, have been financed over the last month or so. And Alex, maybe you want to talk about this trend? Yeah, exactly. So um, as we've already noted and noticed happening within the 3D printing industry, um, there was a lot of VC flowing into um, growth stage companies and growth investment, investment in growth, which was really attractive. Um, but obviously macroeconomic conditions of, of late have led to that really changing fundamentally. Um, there's been a shift away from growth stage companies. Um, but the one thing or the one area that will still attract VC funding is AI. And so what we're seeing now, of course, is that there are 3D printing companies who are very much sort of drumming up their AI capabilities in order to attract funding. Um, it's a good strategy, honestly. Um, it's definitely going to help you um, get a, a secure, a higher deal value, um, higher fund fundraising value than you otherwise would have. Um, we've got a couple of deals all with AI as some some part of their business. So four, four deals, in fact. Um, the first one is AI Build. Uh, this is a pretty recent one. Um, they raised an undisclosed amount from IQ Capital as a lead investor, but it should be noted that IQ Capital um, has just closed a $200 million fund that's focused on deep tech and uh, AI build. Um, they actually had AI in their name well before AI was the, the next big thing to um, fundraise off, uh, but they are a toolpathing planning software, essentially. They used to be really focused on polymers, but they're now very much moving into the metal space as well. Um, if you think about uh, the kind of setup where you've got a robot and um, either a material extrusion head or you've got a directed energy deposition head, um, that's where AI build come in. And AI in that process is actually important because you've got a whole lot of things to consider, in, in particular material behavior. Um, AI is supposed to be material and hardware agnostic. But looking at the AI build uh technology and really the value proposition, um, they've got that user interface that's driven by natural language processing. And I feel like that's the real selling point that maybe the VCs picked up on because it avoids the onboarding time to really get familiar with a software and develop the engineer's intent. And so I, I, I think that's a big part of the story here because you can now just speak normal English to it and get an advanced toolpath out of the system, which is the kind of thing that we're starting to see more commonly when we're talking to uh, any of the large language model type ChatGPT type systems. Are you saying they're making it so easy that an investment banker can start 3D printing? 
there's a first time for everything, but I'm not sure they're quite there yet. Slicing and infill and I wouldn't want to uh, get too complicated for you, Danny. <laughs> no, I like, I, I think um, I, this one, when I look at it, I, I see a lot of things that I've seen in other places. I just think that they're aggregating it across a, a broader array of tools and systems. So, I mean, it, this goes back to sort of what Arivo was doing with continuous carbon fiber, how you do machine learning, build the digital twin, tool path uh, optimization. And so, you know, I, I think we've seen sort of pieces of this. Um, I think it's obviously needed in the market, especially as we're doing larger builds, working on robotic arms and some of these different technologies. Looks like a good starting point. I, I don't, I'd be curious to see how that user interface and the nat natural language processing works, um, because I do think, you know, ease of use uh, to drive adoption will be a big one here. So pretty cool. Agree completely. And if there's a bit of a technology agnostic aspect to that from that toolpath generation, I mean, one of the biggest headaches is uh, just trying to fit all the 3D printer manufacturer logos on one graphic. I mean, we're in, well into the hundreds. And so harmonizing that um, could be quite an interesting opportunity, especially as there's an increased trend for open source or at least open access, you can bring the different software in to run a particular motion control platform with an extruder on it or similar. So on to our next um, AI deal, 3D Spark, they raised um, 1.2 million euros uh, in a seed round from front of a, a front of a tech transfer fund um, as the lead. Um, they're a uh, automatic quoting platform. So we've definitely seen this uh, type of offering around before. Um, we talked about Makerverse in a prior episode that do something kind of similar, but they do leverage AI um, in order to speed up that quoting process. I would say we don't see it often enough. Um, there are not that many companies that are good at looking at large databases of uh, computer design files and picking out what would be the optimal way to manufacture that particular design file. Um, and so that part screening combined with that uh, request for quote generation is something that I'm pleased to see, mainly because I feel like there's a huge uh, barrier to adoption right now with a lot of the more traditional companies with large historic spare part inventories. Um, they, they're still dealing with that whole uh, digital transformation concept. And I know digital inventory is still a bit of a dream uh, in most cases, but I'm pleased to see that there's more tackling yeah. that particular. Yeah, problem. I, 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 you know, on this one, I mean, 3D Spark, the other one that uh, jumps out uh, to me that's somewhat similar is Castor out of Israel. And I'll just say this, I, I, the more of these that are out there to help optimize and figure out which parts um, are applicable for 3D printing so you can start to readjust supply chains is wonderful. Keep going, 3D Spark. Do it, and uh, you know, I, I think this the market needs more of that because uh, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding of what are the right parts to to move into 3D printing. Yeah, so the next one was Restore 3D. This is going back to our medical device theme. Um, Restore 3D raised 12 million dollars in the form of convertible debt from 96 investors, where the minimum investment size was 25k. Uh, they use like a gyroid-based design software to also make patient-specific implants uh, focused on um, the upper extremities, the spine and the ankle. Um, they previously had an acquisition. They merged with Kinos Medical that uh, did the ankle work in the ankles. So, guys, what's with 96 investors? Yeah, it's a lot. But I mean, sort of these crowdfunding platforms and, you know, I think if, if they can raise this kind of volume of money, uh, you know, doing that, great, good, good on them. Money's hard to get these days. And, you know, anything outside of your traditional VCs, uh, it, that, that's that's quite remarkable. So good to see it happening, uh, I think is probably the, what I would offer up here. So the next one was Voxel, a Cincinnati-based software company. They raised $1.7 million from Cincitech, which is a, a Cincinnati-based venture fund um, that encourages investment in that locale. Um, that's a multi-physics AI model um, that rapidly generates designs. You may be asking, what is multi-physics? Because it is a word or a term that gets thrown around quite a lot. 
um, it's really where you consider all types of physical conditions. So it could be a structural load, a thermal flow, or um, electromagnetism. I thought the founders here, Aaron Chow and Zach Bella, um, they're both uh, University of Michigan alumni, and they've been doing this in stealth mode since college. So uh, $1.2 million as a seed round is, is really excellent, and um, I think this is a really cool story. Agreed, though uh, at some point I would be curious to see how they're applying AI to those more traditional uh, multi-physics or finite element type models that drive most computer-aided engineering capabilities today. Software uh, sure scales easier than a lot of the hard tech that we see, um, and we'll talk about the next one I think is quite the exciting hard tech example, but we'll see where uh, Voxel comes out compared to the previous generation of uh, both physics and AI driven, whether it's topology optimization or generative design uh, offerings, because we have seen some acquisitions over the years in those as well. Yeah, we definitely have. So that's kind of a roundup of all of our AI uh, VC um raises. Uh, let's move on to Alloy Enterprises because this is a really exciting company. And um, also thanks to Dayton for picking this up because technically this happened before um, episode four and, and we missed it. Uh, I'm not sure how, but they raised $26 million in a series A led by Piva Capital. They had some other investors on board as well, uh, namely Robert Down- Downey Jr.'s Footprint Coalition that's focused on green tech. They have a, a pretty unique um, approach to making complex aluminium parts. Um, hey, Dayton, do you want to talk to that? Sure. So uh, it is arguably my favorite uh, of the seven ASTM processes in additive manufacturing, uh, sheet lamination. And it is one of the most uncommon ones in terms of companies that work on that particular technology. And so Alloy Enterprises has a laser that will raster out the shape of a part layer and will also have a uh, agent that they deposit onto certain parts to prevent sticking between them. So they create these stacks of patterns and it's if you're looking for a great visual, they have a couple on their website. Uh, what happens is that stack of part of aluminum sheets gets fused together with heat and pressure. And then you can get out your finished part because you've pre-cut and prevented the consolidation between the layers in certain places. And so mm-hmm. you can create voids and solid areas which is quite interesting because there's a whole lot of aluminum structural components that fit the type of shape and usually take advantage of the low cost of aluminum um, in those applications. Automotive comes to mind in particular. Yeah, it should be noted that this is based on, um, you know, as you mentioned, sheet lamination. So you're using sheet, um, sheets of, of aluminum or essentially really thin foils, right? Um, but it does mean that you are not um, constrained to the usual alloys that you are constrained to when you are, say, doing laser powder bed fusion with aluminium. So uh, 6061, for example, which is a really popular workhorse, um, aluminium alloy um, is totally easily able to be used. And that's a, often a preferred alloy for a lot of different industries, aerospace in particular. So it's a, it's a really easy way of making a complex aluminium part, basically, do you want to speak to the founding team? Because I think that they're really interesting. This is a, a Boston-based company, right? It is. And uh, it was founded, uh, I believe, in 2020. Um, there were some uh, people formerly with Desktop Metal that I think were looking for the next venture. And I remember uh, meeting them early last year. Uh, I haven't visited them yet, but... Um, but I'd say that they've definitely taken an innovative and different approach. Um, I, I put them in one of a, uh, a small group of companies that kind of break the molds as far as any of the seven established AM processes. Because like they, the mold. 
Excuse the pun. Yeah, sorry. I mean, there is no mold that they're using in their process, so it's a generic <laughs> pun, not a specific one. I'll live with that. I'll live with that later. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to finish up on this one, I mean, uh, just first of all, you know, in this fundraising environment, it's, it's hard for anybody. So this is a fairly large round, so it's worthy to, to note that, first of all. And Dayton, just looking at PitchBook, it, it sort of deviates from some of the articles a little bit. So if we just wanted to get the math behind some of the uh, rounds that were done, it looks like they had, had already raised about five and a half million in, in sort of seed round or pre-seed early stage rounds, uh, starting back in the 2020 timeframe. So this one, according to PitchBook, was 29 versus 26 million on a pre-money valuation of 24.6 and a post-money of 53. So um, might might be an indication if you know pitchbook again everybody is never perfect and none of these are perfect from you know the reporting requirements but it, it tells you right now you know big rounds like this come at a hefty premium so that that is a you know a pre-money valuation close to the amount that you raise is is in in good times not characteristic and this time it's great because you got something and you can keep going so kudos to the team for for getting a round done yeah absolutely so another um a uh, company from a very similar part of the world is Fortify 3D. They've recently raised $12.5 million from two joint joint strategics, Lockheed Martin Ventures and RTX Ventures, which are the, the Raytheon um, venture arm, uh, which is pretty cool. This is to expand its digital composite manufacturing process and materials. Um, I think really notably here, Fortify 3D do ESD materials, um, so electrostatically dissipative photopolymers, um, it prevents static charge building up um, up to pretty high temperatures. And this is really important for things like radio frequency applications. Yeah, if everybody uh, hits the rewind button to episode two, I think we brought up back in December, Lockheed had announced uh, an undisclosed amount on their investment into Fortify 3D. So this is sort of the follow-on is my guess where Raytheon came in and uh, also Incatel and an angel investor, Jason Cahill was listed as well on this one, but exactly our understanding as well. Lots in this RF component space. Um, it fits the bill very nicely for their materials and their process. Typically in my experience with Lockheed, as we were, we dealt with them back um, quite a few years ago on another RF component company. Uh, in 3D printing, they typically invest when there's applications. Incutel as well tends to fund as a customer. If everybody doesn't know, that's the CIA's investment arm. And then Raytheon, they, they tend to all invest along applications. So Fortify, this is a good indication that they're on the right track with some big major customers. And I just want to note that there's uh, quite a strong material science and engineering uh expertise at Fortify. Um, it's not an easy thing to get those additives into that photopolymer and orient them in the right way with that uh, that magnetically driven uh, custom 3D printing platform that they've developed. So the fact that they've hit uh, you know soft tooling for injection molding with uh, ceramic additives in their photopolymer as much as they've gone into the more uh, conductive material additives for RF applications um, don't see that too often from a functional standpoint in the additive industry. We're primarily a structural um, industry first. Yeah. So speaking of Boston, yet again, um, we did cover them in our um, previous episode, episode four, but Boston Microfabrication, we'd mentioned that they had a C1 round with Dragon Rise Capital uh, for an undisclosed amount. Um, they've now announced this Series D of $22.3 million, bringing the total raise to $98.5 million. Um, I think there's a there's some really interesting points but I, I, to cover off around Chinese investment here, um, but we did actually cover it off pretty well, I reckon, in, in the previous episode, so maybe go and check that out. The last one today is Elephant Tech Inc. Uh, startup based in Tokyo, Japan. Super interesting. Um, they made 900 million yen or $6.4 million through third-party allotment of new shares. One of the leads there was the EMI Innovation Fund, uh, which is a combined fund between Mitsubishi um, and Global Brain Innovation um, as the general partner. Guys, what's really uh -huh. interesting about this one? <laughs> Well, lots of things. I mean, I, first of all, I mean, the application space one, we can get into the company, but before we even get to the company, just talking about Mitsubishi Electric for a second and, and the fund, um, 
hooray. I feel like uh, a sleeping giant has been awoken. Um, Mitsubishi Electric has been very difficult to get a hold of. I think that's been a discussion point with a lot of the investment bankers um, because they haven't been as out forward outreaching, looking beyond their walls for innovation. So the fact that they started a fund is fantastic. I think that's that's probably my favorite piece of news. One thing structurally on these investments that I find interesting, and I would like to know if I if I had more information, I'd, I'd love to, to figure it out, is how they actually did the investment. Because doing direct investments in Japan can be hard. And we came across this when we did a transaction with JSR Corporation and Oxford Performance Materials. And how we were to set up a, an entity in Japan, we actually funded it out of the U.S. and created an operating subsidiary because... It, it, unlike the U.S., it's very difficult to get equity for uh, for founders when they aren't contributing something that's a, a hard asset or dollars in Japan. That's just sort of the way that they work. So um, I'm glad to see. I'd love to see more of this type of innovation, more easier ways for entrepreneurs in Japan to get funded. And by the way, I'm just thrilled Mitsubishi Electric now is, uh, is really starting to operate with this uh, CBC fund. I think the nature of this particular investment uh, into Elephant Tech, which is looking to offer um, printed circuit boards or PCBs uh, using metal inkjet printing, which is considered a material jetting class of additive. Um, there's shorter lead times, fewer steps, and they even claim a reduced carbon footprint and uh, reduced copper usage. And it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Nano Dimension and a couple other companies that are targeting um, PCBs from prototyping to even short run production. So I think that's that's an area that's really going to benefit from that accelerated uh, product development cycle. Yeah, it's funny. Um, in the press release, they say they're the the first company in the world to successfully mass produce printed circuit boards using metal inkjet printing. Um, they've been mass producing them since 2020 uh, with no recalls, and it feels like a um, a real sort of bragging point um, there. And uh, you're right, like Dayton. Uh, as soon as I read this, I thought um, of Nano Dimension straight away. Um, but yeah, definitely one we haven't heard, like I personally haven't heard of them until now. So um, very interesting to, to hear about this company in Japan and also super cool to hear about um, a big company like Mitsubishi Electric investing uh, in additives. They have made some prior investments in additive, but it's been like a lot of these Japanese companies, um, been, been a little uh, sort of toe in the water, toe out um, sort of approach. And so this is perhaps or hopefully um, a sign of more things to come where we see a, a lot more investment coming out of Japan. All right. Well, I want to wrap up now. Um, this has been episode five of the Printing Money podcast. On behalf of Danny and myself, I want to say a big thank you to Dayton Horvath from AMT um, for joining us today. Uh, like I said, Dayton, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't even know each other and this podcast wouldn't even exist. So thank you so much for um, being on episode five today. And before I go, I want to say a special shout out to the high schoolers at Redondo Union High School in California. Uh, Danny, did you know we have some fans uh, and they are high schoolers down at Redondo. So um, thanks, kids, for listening and stay curious. You've been listening to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.